Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 Welcome to Tell Me the Story with Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us for a weekly study of the Bible as we read verse by verse with the original context and languages at the forefront, illuminating the stories at hand. This week, we continue the story of Jacob and his sons dealing with the famine that has driven them to seek the aid of one they thought to be long dead, their once suffering brother. Now that Joseph is in this seat of power and seems to have God's favor, he tests his unknowing brothers before showing them the full abundance of Egypt's storehouses of food. Let us continue to hear the story. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had bought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send your brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had a brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and send him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. So first we get a bit of a recap where Jacob's sons tell him again of what it would take to get more food from Egypt. Jacob is, of course, reluctant. However, the text refers to him as Israel here, which I find interesting. We've talked extensively about the apparent discrepancies between these two names. It seems at first to be random, but randomness was not a characteristic of these ancient literatures, especially within such a unified story. When you actually hear this section, it seems like Jacob is going back and forth with his sons about doing what they must to secure more food, kind of like he is wrestling with them about the correct course of action. So that could be one reason the authors used Israel instead of Jacob here, because it's reminding us of his wrestling with the man in the wilderness, because here he is wrestling with his sons in a manner of speaking. Right, and it'll be important for us to continue to work this out and keep this in mind as we continue on in the text. Unfortunately, not a lot of commentators really give much importance to these different names. Most people just seem to consider them to be variable synonyms, and that's it. I'm compelled to not be convinced by that line of thinking. In Scripture, there are at least three names for the character Jacob. The first is, well, Jacob, of course, and then there is Israel, and finally we have Jeshurun, which is from Yashar, which means to be upright. So while Rowdy and I may not have a definite answer on how exactly the authors are using these names, we are taking a note of the fact that different names are being used. So that's the first part of the battle. 
Another interesting section of verbiage comes in verse 8, where Judah is trying to convince his father to send the youngest brother with them, where he says, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. The part I find interesting there is the, quote, arise and go so that we may live and not die, end quote. This concept is often linked to the initiating movement declared by God to his subjects. He tells the prophets to arise and go, to get up and get moving, as it were. And it is often for the salvation of themselves or a third party. That idea is built upon or perhaps just interplayed with later in the biblical texts, but I think it's interesting here that specific verbiage is used to connect it to that idea, and it's also used later to connect to doing God's will. Here, the sons of Jacob are concerned about going to secure more food, and they need their father's cooperation for them to, quote, arise and go, so that they don't die. But as it says in Deuteronomy, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Here, the language of the prophets, arise and go, is connected with our characters rising and going after that which is secondary. But that is the point. They are slaves to their stomachs, not God. Jacob's house has fallen ill with the disease of sin, and these are the consequences. We must continue hearing the story to see where it leads. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother, and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. So speaking of discrepancies, it's interesting that Israel tells his sons to bring choice fruits as well as honey and almonds to Egypt as a gift, when the whole reason they are dealing with the Egyptians in the first place is because they are supposedly suffering from a famine. It's really strange, and Israel's choice of gifts seems to be exaggerated as if he's giving up his entire fortune for the sake of Benjamin. This whole episode has a humorous ring to it. But the authors are clearly drawing this out as much as possible so that the payoff will be as powerful as it ends up being. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. So the man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, O my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight, so that we have brought it again with us. And we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. 
Verse 23 really is at the heart of this entire section. On the surface, it appears to contradict what we heard in the last chapter. Joseph clearly commanded his subjects to fill the bags with the money, but here, Joseph says that it is God who did so. That is because God's mercy is being actualized through the mercy Joseph is showing his brothers. In the same way, the blessing that Egypt is enjoying at this point in the story is the blessing of God through Joseph. That's the scriptural narrative. To show mercy to your neighbor is to share God's mercy with them. It also solidifies Joseph as an ideal servant of God. His actions are not his own, and his mercy is not his to give. It is God's mercy, and he is simply acting in obedience to his God. Yeah, and also in that verse, there's a somewhat unique Hebrew word, the word for treasure, which is matmon. It often refers to a hidden treasure, and the root word it comes from, taman, appears only one other time in Genesis, which is back in chapter 35, where God himself renames Jacob. Please go back and check out our previous episode, episode 51, for more info on that. But that moment marked an important part of Jacob's character story, and in that chapter, God tells Jacob to go up to Bethel, to dwell there, to build an altar to him. And in the very next verse, Jacob commits to doing so, and he tells all of his household and all the people who are with him to give up their foreign gods and to purify themselves. Jacob then takes those gods and taman, or hides them. They're all precious idols, expensive objects, they're treasures, so to speak, and he hides them away. And that's the root word where we get the hidden treasure that Joseph is talking about here. It's such a beautiful literary connection that the authors have put in here. It is totally functional. Jacob, at a sort of character realization, hides that which is shameful, i.e. the idol worship of other gods, and later, the one god worthy of worship, who Jacob hid those things away to come in front of, commits a similar act by hiding treasures of salvation in the backpacks of Jacob's sons through Joseph, which is itself a metaphor for this entire salvation through Joseph through Egypt story. As Blaze said, wonderful storytelling, in my humble opinion. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth, And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. Here we see a reunion of brothers, but there are some interesting things to point out. Part of the main thesis of the entire scriptural narrative is that humanity is just one giant familial unit. As Paul spells it out for us in his letters, there is no Jew nor Greek. 
the author's inclusion of the statement about the common meal with the Hebrews being an abomination to the Egyptians serves as an admonition against the Judeans who will harbor this very same sentiment against the Gentiles. At no point does it say that it was just as scandalous for the Hebrews to eat with the Egyptians, only the other way around. Egypt functions as the place of bondage, a place that while it is the pinnacle of earthly civilization, it is also a place where the Lord is a human king and may or may not live up to his duty to protect his subjects. It is the place that God sends his Lord, who is the scriptural Yahweh, to rescue the Israelites from and lead them into the desert to live functionally as his sheep. When the Israelites later devolve into becoming a second Egypt, this prior example serves to implicate them. And what's also interesting is the fact that Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of the others. He is the youngest brother, the last shall be first, that type of thing. And what's interesting is the number five, because it seems to reflect perhaps the five books of the Torah, this common law that is for the Israelites that encapsulates what we've been talking about, this mercy to the youngest member, this, this mercy towards the outsider, which I find to be really fascinating. It's all very, very intelligently woven together, this story. And speaking of being intelligently woven together, something that I just noticed, we don't have it in the script here, but like all positive situations in these scriptural stories, whenever something seems to be all right, there's union, there's harmony, there's communion at table, there's a pang of foreshadowing of something negative, of something that will pull us back from the positive experience that we're having in the story, and that is that the Egyptians aren't sharing in this holy uh, experience of communion between these reunited brothers, of Joseph showing this great abundance of mercy. The Egyptians are separated from it. They're not seeing it. They're not learning from it. They're not experiencing the Torah the same way Jacob's family is in this moment, and that is likely foreshadowing the enslavement that the Jews that the Hebrews, the Israelites, will experience later in uh, Exodus under the later Pharaoh. And along with all of that, uh, the overall narrative being established by this story through its familial imagery also serves as a very interesting depiction of our own circumstances under the commands of Scripture to treat our neighbor with the utmost hospitality like Joseph to his brothers. So what do I mean by that? Well, if this scene were painted as a painting and it was hung up in a museum and we all knew the story, I think it'd be a little bit more obvious if we could see it sort of like a film or like a painting. The estranged brother Joseph is the host of the meal, and all of his brothers who are there do not know that they are his brothers. All they know at this point is that this very powerful man is showing them, those who should be the least of his concern, these foreigners, this unfathomable hospitality. Joseph the one who currently preserves and holds the power and purity of God's word knows that these men are his brothers and we should be like him because any who are in need are our brothers, sisters, siblings, mothers, fathers, aunts, uncles, etc., etc. Whether or not they know it, whether or not they follow the same teaching we submit to, we know that they are our family according to scripture. That very teaching we submit to teaches us that all human beings are our family and they should all be treated with the same abundance of hospitality, invited into our home and given a seat at our table and fed their fill of our food. Joseph has an insider knowledge 
we also have that same insider knowledge. This is the way. This is scripture. This is the dinner of Joseph and his brothers, who might as well be strangers, save for the irony of the story that only we as the audience are really aware of. Let us be like Joseph and serve all who are hungry. See you next week. This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network.